This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Right now on CBS in New York, in El Paso, Texas, a young man is being charged with the murders of 20 people after opening fire at a Walmart yesterday. Just hours after that shooting, authorities in Dayton, Ohio, say another man killed nine people in a popular entertainment district. CBS 2's Hazel Sanchez is here now with the latest. Hazel? Uh, again, we are a nation in mourning and in shock over the mass shootings this weekend that, as you mentioned, left us with a combined death toll of nearly 30 people and many others injured. Investigators are still piecing together why the shootings took place, while we also try to figure out how to stop the violence. Paul Violis is a CBS News security consultant, an accomplished author, and a renowned global security and law enforcement expert. With over 35 years of experience, he's dedicated his life to finding solutions for the problems that keep you up at night. This is Security Matters with Paul Violis. Welcome to Security Matters, where security matters most. I'm Paul Violis, and this is a CBS News radio production. As you heard from our newsreel introduction today, we sit in the wake of two mass shootings within 24 hours themselves, one in El Paso, Texas, the other in Dayton, Ohio. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, we are left with the omnipresent questions. Why did this happen? What can be done? Are we doing enough? From just moments after the first shooting in El Paso, uh, I've been on between CBS TV and CBS Radio nonstop and then covering Dayton. And with questions that we've had called in and written in, these are the things that everybody wants to know. But that's not unusual because we seem to be asking the same questions every single time something happens, and that's not uncommon. Now, we can take a political look at this, and we can, but we're not. We're going to take a realistic look at this and not pull any punches. As you know, that's just what happens here. Before we, And I am going to be joined by a, a true expert panel of mental health professionals that are going to provide invaluable information, real information, people that don't just talk about it, people that do it, people that are in the midst of it, that understand. So we are not going to pull any punches. I'm going to say that again. We're rolling our sleeves up today, and we are going to discuss the common denominators in mass shootings. Before I get going, first and foremost, all of our prayers here at CBS News Radio and certainly here on Security Matters, for the family and friends and the communities in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio. And a huge thank you to the El Paso Police Department and to the Dayton Police Department. Ladies and gentlemen, I assure you, your expeditious and exemplary response saved lives. There's absolutely no question about that. So as we kick this off, without further ado, let's talk about some of the things that we do know. From a law enforcement perspective, when we look at mass shootings, we know that 94% of the shooters are male. We know that assault rifles are rapidly becoming the weapon of choice. 
We know 87% are not married. We know 73% have an absolute connection to the, rep, to the venue of the shooting. We know 40% purchased the, the weapon legally for that an incident alone. We know 35% already own the weapon. 85%, and this is the part that we start to get into when we talk about, when we talk about the term foreseeability, predictability. 85% of the shooters, quote-unquote, brag about get-even plans, or now, I guess we're using a real sexy word called leakage. The bottom line is 85% of the shooters at a minimum will say what they're going to do, when they're going to do it, and how they're going to do it. And the worst part about that is 54% of the people who they've told or communicated that with did absolutely nothing. That's a fact. We know that to be true. We know that the pedigrees of the shooters range from hate crimes to revenge-oriented to workplace violence to domestic violence to domestic terrorism to international terrorism. And all of those are different. And they're different people. And they have different motivations. So there isn't one set profile for a shooter when it comes to mass shooting. There are a variety of different pedigrees. We know that social media is used to post plans like the blog 8chan which was recently taken down, which, believe it or not, uh, will be back up again. And if it's not, then the others, like 4chan, will be up. But one of the real disturbing things that, that our analysts here came up with that, that I have to share with you, and it's something that I believed in, but I wanted to get some proof, and we, we, we got that proof, is that video games actually have a link to this. Turns out that many people come to the politically incorrect boards or used to to of 4chan and 8chan from video game communities where players looking to quote unquote laugh at an abasing joke or chat about violent games without offending anyone can find friends. The forums are rife with in jokes in which users routinely blur the lines between actually believing in Nazism and laughing about it. After the Poway Shooters Manifesto appeared, posters on 8chan wrote that the killer should try to, and I quote, get the high score and kill a larger number of people than the Christ Church shooter did. You can't make that up. That's a fact. All of those things we know are true. They are connections. They are common denominators. We know that 25% were diagnosed with mental illness. Now, those were diagnosed. I, I'm, one of the questions I'm going to ask our expert panel is, you know, how many people actually go undiagnosed? And we know out of two, or 314, I guess, approaching 320 million Americans, one in six Americans are currently on psychiatric drugs. To really take a deep dive into this subject, I have invited uh, three National treasures, as far as I'm concerned, people that have dedicated their lives, sacrificed countless amount of days and months and years of their own personal life to serve others. Our first guest is Deborah Dunn. She joins from Raleigh, North Carolina. She is, is an author. She's an expert in trauma and grief, uh, actively right now contracting with the employee assistance programs throughout North Carolina and has over 400 deployments since 2005. John Thurman joining... Um, well, hailing from, uh, originally from Georgia, I understand, living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, will be joining us from El Paso on the ground at Ground Zero. Uh, John is a renowned speaker. He's a counselor. 
Um, and he is an accomplished author. John has over 150 business crisis responses under his belt. And someone who you've heard here on the show before, one of, was someone I am blessed to call a dear friend. Uh, he and I go back to our 9-11 days together, talking about none other than Bob Vanderhoel, Bob coming from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He is the executive director of Pine Rest Christian Mental Health Services Employee Program, formerly the president of Crisis Care Network, where he led that particular organization. He led that particular organization. I say that twice. To the world's largest provider of critical incident response services. Without further ado, Deborah, John, Bob, thank you for joining the show today. Thank you for having me. Deborah, I'm going to Deborah, I'm going to start by by coming to you first, if you don't mind, ma'am. My question to you is this: you have you have seen well over a couple hundred, well over four hundred deployments in your career. You've seen these types of situations. You've been there. You've lived through it. You've you've had to navigate through all the different nuances that a mass shooting uh, brings forth to a community. If you take a look in your head, what are the first common denominator? What's the biggest common denominator? What's one that just jumps off the plate to you when you think of things that are consistent from case to case? Um, the disenfranchised male that doesn't feel that he belongs, never has belonged, um, and that this environment is almost like a cult experience for him of belonging and something he can do um, and uh, do well and be, um, you know, no matter how dark or evil or, you know, the, hum- the great human need is to p- feel bigger, a part of something bigger than themselves. And unfortunately, this is their warped way of being part of that bigger, powerful, you're not going to bully me around. So you think a lot of this uh, has, kind of cult. do you think a lot of this has to do with a sense of belonging or a need for belonging? Uh, for fame, for belonging, for mm-hmm. statement. Uh, see, I'm not as weak and powerless and as unattractive. You think I'm a nobody? You just watch. And I'm going to come back to that, Deborah. John, same question. What's the common denominator that sticks off the plate for you? Well, I think one of the things that we see uh, in most of these is single white male, uh, many times a gamer. And just like uh, Deborah's saying, they tend to be loners. They tend to kind of live in their own fantasy world. And they're filled with hate. Uh, and, you know, I think the president, whether you agree or not, this morning really hit that nail on the head. Uh, a lot of people want to say, oh, this person must have been out of their minds. No, uh, a lot of these shooters are very much in their mind. They're very deliberate. They've planned it down to uh, a pretty significant detail as to what they're going to do and how they're going to carry it out. And, uh, and just with some of the chatter this morning when I was coming over here to work, and I'm right in the thick of the day dealing with some folks that have been impacted by the shootings here in El Paso, uh, is, uh, you know, in America, we have a lot of freedoms. And uh, I heard Trent Gallery this morning talk about he might be willing to trade some of those to kind of tighten some of these things up. Uh, the downside of being a free society is these things happen. I think we've got to find some ways to, to, to impact this where we have uh, – these events not happening. But uh, you see that theme of loners, lots of uh, 
time on the screen, lots of time detached from society, and I pretty much agree with everything Deborah said in regards to that. There, this is a way for powerless people to have power that's fueled by hate. That's fascinating. Bob, same question. You know, I'm struck by the fact that the things that help the survivors to bounce back and be resilient, um, over and over you see three things. You see um, one is a belief and a, com- and a commitment to some cause bigger than me that motivates my life. That helps me bounce back. Next is having positive social support. People who care about me come alongside me, give me both feedback and attaboys. And then the third is positive coping skills to deal with fear and frustration and conflict and taking good care of themselves. And when I think about the shooters, I think about those same three points. Mm. Um, They don't have a mission bigger than themselves that's healthy and life-giving. The only mission they can find is something that's hateful, as John talked about. The The only social support they can find is that which is an accelerant to that hatred and now they found a club where they do belong and the coping strategies obviously are impulsive rage filled and and harmful so it's kind of like the the flip side of what helps people recover from it in a warped way is what drives the shooter let's go let's let's piggyback on that bob and deborah i'm going to come back to you as it relates to hate all right as it relates to hate you know, oftentimes I ask the question to my audiences, and Bob's heard me do this in, in public speaking engagements, what's a more powerful emotion, love or hate? And, and what I always say, the correct answer is whichever one you feed. So when we, think of, when we think of hate, when we think of that emotion, from a mental health perspective, being that it seems to be a very strong common denominator uh, amongst active shooters, in your experience, Deborah, what are some of the telltale signs that someone is grappling with this hate so much that it could be to a person as educated by you that, you know what, I think we really need to take a good look at this guy. What are some of the, the red flags that go out when someone's grappling with that feeling of hate? Well, I can go back to my experience at Virginia Tech um, where I heard Uh, I was serving in the international house there, and uh, uh, what came forward there was that Cho was actually writing essays in college that were graphic and bloody, and, and because that was such a culture of freedom of spirit and freedom of of expression that nobody challenged that um and you know i even went on a christian writers forum and i had people um sort of attack me because how dare you say that this boy should have been called on the carpet and asked to explain himself or be referred to mental health because we don't want to suppress their freedom of expression and their creativity. The English class is not the place. Well, we're so far beyond that. We we are are desperately needing to look at how to access these individuals without trampling on freedom of speech. And, you know, when is enough enough? 
But that's a great question. When when do we when do we legislate that and make it a law that you can't attack groups of people? That's not freedom of speech. Right. That's communicating threats. Well, you, and and it's a fascinating point that you bring up. Uh, our executive producer Seth Nyman, who's joining us on the show today, um, he and I were talking about this be- before the show, and he raised a, a very interesting question about something very similar to that. It's one that that we grapple with in law enforcement because the the problem is that the way things are legislated right now, the laws clearly stipulate that until that speech becomes an action, it's free. Right. Right? So right. even though it's foreseeably dangerous, it's it's still free. So John, I'm gonna right. come to you. John, I'm gonna come to you on that. You see hate as something that is a core with respect to these shooters. What are some of the signs that you've seen that have been projected prior to, you know, these incidents taking place? Well, I think one of the things that we're getting more and more aware of are their social media posts. <clears throat> Most of the time, they're indicators. And some of our friends uh, in law enforcement say many times they're indicators. But as you just stated, the frustration thing is you really can't do anything with an indicator. Uh, but there are indicators. Many times they're on social media. Uh, some other things I think we look at. Uh, matter of fact, I was just reading a book called iGen, where she's looking at the uh, generation born 1994 and Ford and how, as a general rule, there seem to be a lot less coping skills because there's a lot more time spent on the, the reflective blue screen. And one of the things that parallels with that, and, and I'm not trying to throw a judgment out there, but uh, in many cases, when you look at some of the parenting styles that some of these uh, shooters grew up with, it was really kind of a hands-off. We, we don't want to uh, impair a young child from expressing themselves and certainly not to make a, a broad judgmental statement. But, you know, as we look into some of the, the parenting that some of these folks have had, you kind of wonder how would the parents completely oblivious to all of this? <clears throat> Go back to Columbine. You see a similar type thing. <clears throat> so we have to take some action. We have to be more not just aware of these indicators, but uh, and this is where the, the justice system and the legislature are going to have to do some things to free up law enforcement to actually uh, make some moves uh, in these types of cases to, to be preemptive, if you will. No, quote. Well, from your lips to God's ears, I know I can speak on behalf of all the cops that are saying that because that's what we're saying. Um, Bob, to you, same question. And when we talk about hate um, and hate-filled communications— out of all that you have seen in your career, are there certain actions? We know there's behaviors, but are there certain actions that jump off the table to you? Yeah. You know, and so often these were kids, <clears throat> not always, but so often these are kids who were the, the victims of violence. They were the victims of ridicule. They were victims of marginalization. Um, didn't have meaningful emotionally laden, commitment-driven relationships. And so what I see so often is just the complete lack of empathy. I mean, we've all laughed at slapstick when somebody falls or gets hit on the head with a bucket or something like that. But these are folks that take particular delight in the pain of other human beings. Or sometimes it's almost even a numbness just no feeling whatsoever. So if I don't see separate people as separate, valuable people, then it's real easy to completely equate them with, you know, little electronic impulses in a video game. 
I don't feel bad if I shoot something on a video game, and I don't feel bad, or I even get tremendous glee from shooting somebody now. So these are folks who oftentimes could watch a movie that would make all of our eyes leak, and theirs don't. Okay. Deborah, I'm going to come back to you on this. Same question, but we'll go, we'll go to, to John and Bob. Deborah, we understand that as people that study behavior, we understand that there are behaviors that we're talking about. Um, there are personal characteristics, and then there are actions. And for our listeners, it's when behaviors, it's when characteristics mature into action that we need to do a better job at getting involved in reporting this. When we look at the stats, at 54%, FBI did a study of 63 shooters. 54% of the, of the cases where, where information was withheld. And people knew what was happening. They read it. They saw it. Like you, you know, John was saying with the social media posts, they read it. They saw it. They were involved with it. They didn't say anything. I think we need to, and I'm going to ask all of you this question. Let's try to list right now, okay, what are the behaviors? What are the actions? If you're talking to our audience right now that they need to be aware of, that if they see, if they read, if they become a part of, that they need to say something about. What are the things, Deborah, in your estimation, what are those things our audience needs to know? Um, well, first of all, they need to address their own fears because I think these individuals have built such a wall around themselves of unapproachability and um, of meanness and danger that people are frightened to turn them in um, for fear that, that that wrath is going to be turned on them. Now, that's just my guess. I haven't talked to anybody. I'm just looking at the human behavior. I don't think the silence is apathy. I think it's fear. They don't know how to approach these individuals. So maybe we need to start teaching people how to effectively approach on a community-by-community basis based on the rules and the protocols in their community that the community and law enforcement can come up with some sort of protocol of how can we protect ourselves and turn this information in beyond just the anonymous tip, which, frankly, and I don't mean in, you know, to cast any doubts here, but I hear a lot of people that they call in hits and nobody ever acts on it. Um, that's a broad generalization. Yeah, I would think, uh, I would think that's, that's a minority. And, I, and, I can, and the reason I say that is because I have gone through that so many times, Deborah, where... Okay. Remember, every single call that comes into every police department is monitored and it's date and time stamped in every right. line, in every phone line, not just nine, the 911 right. phones, right? So what I'm going to ask all of you before we wrap this conversation up, what I want to know is, let me rephrase that. I know that we're not going to eliminate this, but what I do know is we can significantly, significantly reduce the rates of occurrence. We could take a chomp out of this and we could do it expeditiously. I truly believe that. If we do nothing but 
increase the information we give to the general public of if you see these behaviors, these are the things you absolutely have to report because they are part of the common denominators that will lead to, that are known to lead to mass shootings. If we just got people that are reluctant, that are fearful, that you know, don't want to get involved, and we got them willing enough to get involved, we can do something immediately. Immediately. And that's a whole lot easier than trying to legislate guns and legislate mental health, which will take years. We can do that with this group right now. So before we close, my question, and I'm going to come back to you, Deborah, on this. What are those behaviors, bullet point, what are those behaviors that you would tell our audience right now? If you're seeing these things, you need to report it. What are they? What we call porcupine behaviors, sending out hate needles, you know, um, uh, putting up walls, um, uh, certainly stockpiling weapons, uh, inflammatory uh, Facebook pages, um, any of those things that we know um, signal that a person is headed for danger. Okay. And, um, okay. Yes. No, that's great. Same question, John. Racially charged language uh, and violent, uh, violent language that seems out of the norm. And, you know, just to real quick, because I know we're short on time. No, go right ahead, John. This is important. Soldier. I want to hear what you have to okay. say. Great. There was a young soldier at the mall this weekend that had a legal concealed carry. He was in a store. There were children there. He grabbed three kids, pulled his weapon out because there was fire going on, and only one person helped him. He called out for people to help, and they didn't. And, you know, it goes back when I was in school when you'd hear about people who were being raped and beat up on the street and no one would call it. And so we've got a long culture of passive involvement and non-involvement. So I, I agree with you. We've got to get more aggressive. We've got to empower the police with what they need to be able to carry out necessary measures to counter these. And we've just got to quit sitting on our duff and be aware of what's going on and take action on an individual level to report these things and to, to let it be known that there's some bad stuff going down. And, John, are there any other behaviors that you want to tell our audience about when they see it they need to report it? You know, I go back to pretty much to mirror the porcupine behaviors that Deborah talked about. Uh, people usually verbalize uh both in person and over social media about where they're intended. And I think you need to, to track that and see it for what it is. And then as you begin to see any of these behaviors, particularly if they mentioned uh, stockpiling weapons and, and talking about plans, you need to be very heads up and forward looking on that and uh, be willing to report that. Okay. Uh, Bob, same question. What I need to know. Yeah, you know. What I need to know, Bob, is I got a lot of people listening right now. There's a lot of frustration right now. And we need to bring a solution. And my question is, what are the behaviors that if people see, I, I read this, I saw this, I heard this, they need to pick up the phone and contact the police. What should that be? You know, people practice before they do something big. Anything yeah. in life. People practice before they do anything big. So oftentimes you will see a ramping up of behavior. So it may start out as somebody making uh, a violent comment not directed toward anybody. And then it makes a violent comment directed toward one person. And then it may include breaking another boundary and may include uh, inappropriate language. And then it may be 
breaking something, and then it may be breaking something in the presence of somebody who's in authority, and then it may be throwing that something in a vicinity of people, and then it's talking about targeting. And I've heard you say many times that specificity increases predictability. And so the more and more that you hear people say and behave moving down that slope toward, I'm going to do this to this specific person at this specific time in this way, heads up, everybody watch. So you see somebody who's got the hatred that was talked about that completely lacks empathy and then starts to practice getting ready for what they see as the biggest event of their life. And, Paul, you and I know that very few of these folks have exit strategies to escape. Very true. They know they're going to die. Exactly. They know they're going to die or they're going to be arrested. And so this is the biggest moment of their life, and they practice and fine-tune that big moment. That was powerful. Bob, you you were completely on point. Uh, With that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Deborah, John, and Bob for their personal messages to each and every one of you. So don't go anywhere. You've been listening to Security Matters with Paul Violas, a CBS News radio production. Take a quick break. Stay with me. Now, back to Security Matters with Paul Violas. Welcome back to Security Matters. I'm Paul Violas, and you are listening to our show today talking about the common denominators in mass shootings. I have three incredible subject matter experts with me right now, Deborah Dunn, John Thurman, who's actually John's is on the scene at Ground Zero in El Paso, and Bob Vanderpoel. Uh, a final question, and this goes to uh, Deborah first. We'll go to everybody. What's the message you want to leave our audience with today with respect to the common denominators of mass shootings and things they absolutely must keep in mind? Um, I would that it takes a village and that Truly, it does more and more as because these children didn't they, they, these children, these adults were somebody's baby and they didn't they weren't born necessarily this way. And the signs do begin to emerge early with the lack of empathy for pets, for example, um, and uh bullying other kids and you know killing animals and uh uh tormenting little girls in the community but we can we need to intervene early by the time these shooters are over the edge they've gotten very good at dodging and masking so basically and, um, basically basically Deborah your your message is get involved Get involved early with foster parenting, with community programs, with okay. inviting these misfits in and dealing with their hatred and their uh, feeling of not belonging. That's a strong message. Thank you, Deborah. John, same question. You're in El Paso right now, correct? Yep, in El Paso. Matter of fact, as soon as we sign off, I'm going to be talking to some more people who are in distress. John, what's, uh, the, te- what's the temperature like right now in El Paso? I'm in an air-conditioned, sealed building right now. But it's going to probably be in the high 90s since I live in Albuquerque. It'll probably be in the upper 90s today. That, in addition uh, here, to everything else my, that's going on. Please tell us your thoughts on that, John. Yes. Well, first of all, as parents, you need a parent with authority. You need to know what your kids are doing. You need to know where they are on the Internet. 
you need to assume your your role there because your kids can't buy internet. They can't buy phone. They have to be 18 or older. So parents, parent with authority. Second thing is just citizens, you know, be vigilant. If you see or hear stuff that's going on, report it. Uh, the law enforcement may not be able to do anything now, but there's at least there's a record of it. So get off your duff and be proactive and be protective. That's a great message, John. Thank you. Bob, clean up to you. What's the message you want to leave our, okay. our listeners with today? John you know, when, has left the conference. You know, when, uh, when something shocking happens, we all start operating out of the dumbest part of our brain, which needs to find one answer why. And so you hear all the rants, so it's a political solution, it's a parenting solution, it's a gun solution, it's an economic, it's a racial, it's a fatherless, it's pick your pick your your perspective. But everybody's ranting and everybody's ranting out of fear and rage. In fact, everybody is behaving like a shooter on social media. So my challenge is to stop your rant. Take the 10 minutes that it took you to post something stupid and go and engage somebody who seems to be on the periphery. Go be with them, listen to them, love on them, pray for them, but be with somebody. I think we could drop it that way. I think that's a great, I think that's a great message, Bob. There's no question about it. And as we tie up this today, I I, want to leave everyone. uh, First of all, a big thank you to Deborah, John and Bob. And I want to leave everyone with, with one thought in mind, and that is this conversation is going to continue, and it doesn't have to. Some of the common denominators we haven't talked about, the fact that so much of this needs to be legislated, and we can't point the fingers at politicians because we have the most power in this country, we the people, because we have the power to vote. We also have the power to elect people, and we have the power to keep them in office. We have to put people in office that are more concerned with doing their job than they are keeping their job. We have to keep people in office that are more concerned with what's right for this country, not what what is right for themselves. And if we can limit the amount of attention that's given and respect that's given to lobbyists and interest groups that are paying their way to have politicians sit in their pockets and make decisions that are not the best for us, then we'll make a dent on this. We can change that. We can also make a change, and it's not going to happen overnight. There's no silver bullet, but we can make a change in how we act, and we can make a change about whether we get involved or not. Clearly, if we want to impact this quickly, get involved. I'll, go, I'll piggyback on what Deborah said. Get involved. Bob touched on remembering hate. And, and just remember that what leads to that and that people will practice that. It leads to a lack of empathy, empathy, and then it leads to people practicing. John talked about how this is going to escalate in conversation. The signs are there. They're posted. The shooter's waving a flag. You have no fear of reporting this because it's completely confidential. So our big ask today is... Report this, get involved, and we can make an immediate change. Number two, that's more medium range. We need to do a better job at holding elected officials accountable. If you're willing to do that, we can do it. We can make that change, but we've got to be willing to do it. A lot of this, ladies and gentlemen, as much as people don't want to hear this, a lot of it is on us. 
we made a lot of changes in this country culturally. Well, you know what? We're reaping what we sowed. And we can change that. But a lot of that's on us. We don't want to have to keep having these conversations. As I close, our deepest sense of prayer to every single person adversely affected by this and what we've seen in the last 48, 72 hours right here in our own country. 250 mass shootings. And you know what? We're in the early part of August. We need to take a better better position on how we fix that. On behalf of everybody here at Security Matters and CBS News Radio, I want to thank everybody for joining. Have a great week. Be safe, be well. God bless. Thanks for listening to Security Matters with Paul Violas. The podcast is produced by Seth Nyman and CBS News Radio. For more podcasts from CBS News, visit cbsaudio.com slash podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.